Well, good morning, saints. So this morning, by way of our title slide, I take you to the Atlantic Ocean. A friend of mine recently went on a cruise and from England to Florida and, of course, pelted me with picture after picture. But it's a good reminder that the missionaries that have gone before us in generations past did not fly to their destination. They sailed the oceans. They said goodbye to their families and loved ones and friends to herald the gospel to other countries. You might know my grandparents were missionaries uh, to the Congo beginning in the 1930s and traveled via ocean liners. May we be faithful in this generation to support our missionaries as they take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are in a sermon series uh, called the, The Glory of God. We are examining the attributes and the excellencies and the perfections of God as he has shown us in his scripture. It is at this point in the series that I would like us to pause. We've examined various perfections thus far. And now we need to ask ourselves a question. Are we taking all of this in merely as intellectual knowledge or mental assent? Or are we taking all of this to heart? There is a warning that is given to God's people over and over and over and over again, both in the Hebrew scriptures and also in the New Testament. Given the beauty and the brilliance of who God is, do not settle for lesser pursuits in life. Do not replace the, wor- the true worship of the living God with living for things that simply in the end do not matter. In fact, anything that competes for our worship or adoration of God is idolatry. Idolatry is widely understood in the Bible simply as worshiping somebody or something else rather than God. That which we labor for, which we're focused on, which we think about all the time, it's not God. But it's somebody or something else. To put it in other terms, there are people or things that you are are more concerned about, more devoted to, than God. To use an old illustration, the Lord should always be the one who sits on the throne of our hearts. Now, for an even more simple definition, we could say this. Idolatry is chasing lesser things. While we're at it, you could insert other words in that place as well. Fixate, fixating on lesser things, obsess, to ruminate on, to covet, etc. We are wrongfully devoting our time and our affections or to things or people other than God in an unhealthy or unbalanced way. The obvious question would be this, given all the excellencies of God that we have been considering, why 
Why would we settle for lesser things? Now, the Lord knows our propensity to be distracted or even entangled or deceived by lesser things. It is no accident that the very first commandment in the Decalogue, God's holy law, is this. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. It is there as an anchor for God's people to see, to be reminded of. If we need to be told this, it's a good indication that we do actually have a propensity or at least the ability to veer off in that direction. Now, idolatry takes many forms. The, uh, the idea of not worshiping God appropriately with our lives can look different in different cultures and in different times. While it is still true to some degree in some places in the world today that people bow down to an idol, for the most part, most people are not physically bowing down to a physical idol. So let's take a look at four passages in God's word, two of which are in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and two are in the New Testament. My aim here is to demonstrate how this injunction spreads the breath of God's people and is equally applicable in different settings and in different eras. Now, every Jew would know the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 towards the beginning of your Bible, if you would like. In verse 4, there's the great declaration that underpins God's relationship with Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. That is an old Jewish idiomatic expression. That's basically... Your entire life, this is what you should be doing. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, watch this, verse 12. Take care. Take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, we know that that entire drama is an illustration of the redemption that Christ gives us out of the slavery of sin. So pay attention to that phrase. Take care. 
lest you forget the Lord. God's message was very simple. I have proven myself to be real and powerful in your life. Do not forget me when you see all the things around you that glitter. You will surely rub shoulders with people who worship lesser things. Do not forget about me and settle for smaller things. Now, their human nature is on full display all throughout the Old Testament. If you know the history of the Israelites, they did actually a terrible job keeping this primary uh, command. Now, fast forward a little bit. Listen to what God has to say to the Israelites thousands of years ago. This is Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah is one of the major prophets. Isaiah is known as the evangelistic prophet because he spoke so much about Christ. But Isaiah also had a few choice words for the Israelites from time to time and for those around her as well. Isaiah chapter 44 speaks of a man who cuts down a tree and then uses the same wood both to warm himself by the fire but then also to fashion an idol and to bow down to it. Verse 13. We're just going to read some of this here. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for him, making a fire. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and he worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Well, that's normal. We expect that. But then verse 17, And the rest of it he makes into a god his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. The indictment is clear in verse 19. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, well, now hang on a second. Half of it I burned in the fire And I also baked bread on it and coals and I roasted meat and I've eaten. And shall I then make the rest an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Do you see what the prophet is getting at? This is lunacy. What are you doing? Why are you, why are you bowing down to that which you made? You see, when God provided the promised land for the Israelites, he knew that there would be an abiding temptation for the people of Israel to turn away from the living God, to worship the false gods around them. 
which usually manifested themselves in the form of an idol. Isaiah said, what are you thinking? So rather than a heart posture of worship towards the one true and living God, they would literally bow their entire body to a man-made idol. An idol that could not help them, could not save them, and literally could not even hear them at all. Now the one who made the moon and the stars and everything around us, all of creation and his dazzling brilliance, and they worship a piece of stone or a piece of wood carved by themselves. Now, I will submit to you that while most of us do not bow down to a physical idol in a physical sense, we do the same by the posture of our heart. We do so when we examine our priorities and we find that we spend our time in what we think about is not the Lord. Now back up to those physical idols. Remember in the New Testament, the book of Acts, when the gospel was spreading, the gospel actually caused such an uproar in Ephesus. Why? Because the gospel was turning people to the one true and living God. But literally it caused a great financial hardship because the people who made the idols no longer had a job. That's what the gospel does. It disrupts that. Now, consider this scorching indictment of the human heart as we cross over from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Many would call the book of Romans the Mount Everest of Christian theology. The simplicity of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, apart from our works. Now, in the book of Romans, as Paul methodically argues both the need for and the means of salvation... Watch as he masterfully diagnoses the human heart and exposes the idolatry that lies within. Remember the passage we're about to read now, which is Romans chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there, because it won't be on the screen. Romans chapter 1. He exposes the idolatry that lies within. Remember, this passage is all about the gospel. It is so highly applicable to each and every single one of us this morning. As we read through it, I want you to notice the references to the glory of God and to idolatry. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It does help if the pastor would go there himself as well. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, follow along. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, In divine nature, this is the glory of God, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He continues, verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise also gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder. We don't see any of this today. Strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless. Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That is not a light passage. The significance of this passage, as I said, is that it directly ends in, and is and it is directly and intrinsically tied to the gospel, which is a heart issue. This is not merely ancient practices of bowing down to wood or metal idols. Idolatry at its root is a condition of the heart, and it is applicable to all peoples everywhere and at all times. Our idols simply look different. The problem of idolatry is absolutely not relegated to the Old Testament or to the unbeliever. Not too long ago, we did a sermon series in the book of 1 John. The very last thing that the apostle of love says in his five chapters, the last verse, the parting shot. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, in John's time, there were a lot of people who actually bowed down to idols, but there were also a lot of people who did not. 
What I mean by that is the idol that John has in mind is not necessarily a little figurine. The idol that John has in mind is anything or anyone who takes a place in your heart, in your affections, and in your thinking that belong to God and to God alone. God's people, born again, filled with the Spirit, are susceptible to being drawn away from a a red-hot walk with the Lord by being distracted by things that glitter. Now, have you ever been tempted for something or someone less than God to take first place in your heart? Keep in mind, idolatry does not just involve pursuits that are inherently evil. For example... I love my wife, I love my family, I love my country. I personally love my teams, burgundy and gold. If you know me, you know that I love my gym, I love my grill, I love my books. None of those things are inherently evil. In fact, they're quite wholesome. But I and you, we all, can allow our passion for them to get out of whack and out of balance. Even our love for our family. So long as my love for my family flows from my love for God, I'm on solid ground. But my highest passion, my highest affection, my highest interest must always be for the Lord. That is why Jesus affirmed God's holy law. You heard Karen read it earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. So let's give one very specific application regarding the sin of idolatry. We can put a lot of these things into perspective with just this one verse. If you care to turn there, Colossians chapter 3. Earlier this year, we were preaching through the book of Colossians and we identified the progression of sin. Like what you see on the, on the, on the surface level is often not actually the true or the deepest sin. Colossians chapter three, verse five, speaking to believers, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now notice the progression he's going to make sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once worked, walked when you were living in them. Now, what is imperative to understand in this verse here is that the Spirit is taking us from the presenting sin, that which we see with our eyes, to the underlying rot or sin, he peels back the onion so we can see why we commit the sins that we do. The example that he uses is obviously sexual immorality. That's the presenting sin. But what's behind that? What's underneath that? Well, impurity. What fuels impurity? Passions and evil desires. Peter has a lot to say about those. We're all familiar, familiar with this. But what's deeper than that? What is at the bottom of the bucket of this progression? It's very simple. A violation of the first commandment. 
No other gods before me. Self on the throne of our hearts and a complete disregard for what God has to say. Playing the fool from Psalm 14 where the fool has said in his heart, though he knows there's a God, he says there's no God. It's what we see in culture today. I will do what I want to do. I will do what brings me happiness. I will do what makes me happy. Fellow saints, let us be careful and diligent to guard our hearts. As Proverbs says, it is the wellspring of life. Let us love and pursue the blessings that God has put in our lives. Let us love those around us well. Let us have no gods before him. Let, a, let those around us feel his love through us, the proper channel. But let us destroy the idols that we have erected within our own hearts. Well did the reformer John Calvin note that the human heart is a factory of idols. And we know it's true. Let us not run after, fixate upon, chase, ruminate over, or be dominated by lesser things. As we'll see next week, we have so much to live for. Do you remember this well-known verse? I forgot to put a slide in for it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter thirteen, if you chapter ten, if you care to turn there, but I'll read it. First Corinthians chapter ten. This is a well known verse. But as we often do, we focus on one verse, but we don't see the context. Verse 13, no temptation, beautiful promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. That is a beautiful and a precious promise that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are indeed able to live a godly life. That is the Bible truth. But note our responsibility, which comes right after that. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Those two statements go together. Don't read them in isolation. Beloved, in light of the beautiful and stunning God that we serve, because he has redeemed us, let us live for his glory and not our own. Work hard, provide for your family, bless others, but do not let the American dream rule over you. Pursue your hobbies and your interests, but balance them with what the Lord is calling you to. As I close in prayer in just a few minutes... I want you to take a few moments of reflection and ask yourself, am I chasing lesser things? Now, remember, it's not a matter of being engaged with other things. You just don't want them to rule over you. You don't want them to be out of balance. You don't want to love them more than you love God. So I just invite you to take a few moments of reflection and then I'll close this in a word of prayer.
Oh Lord, this morning we do give you thanks and praise. Lord, even if we don't feel all of these things, we know that you are beautiful and brilliant. We know that you are awe-inspiring. Help us in the high points and the low points in our lives to honor you, to give you glory. For you to be glorified in the pursuits that we have in our life. Help us to pursue and engage the things and the people that we love in a balanced way. Our friends and loved ones will be so much better off with us if we love the Lord, if we love you first. And Lord, I do pray that we would not feel guilty. We may feel the heat of your conviction, but we're not looking to make ourselves feel guilty. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, if there are areas in our life that we do need to do some course correction on, give us your grace and your strength to do so. Knowing full well that you love us, that you accept us, that we are adopted into your family. Thank you for all the blessings you've given us. Help us to enjoy them, knowing that they are from you. And please do help us to remember that Christ is not the most important one in our life. He is our life. We give you thanks and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.